0: Hey, this is John S. Pennington Jr. and welcome to the Big Bang Bible Podcast. I'm so excited you're here. Okay, this one is episode 106 and it's entitled Secret Names of Angels. And uh, I had to write this because there are so many people in the Bible that get their name changed. They get a new name, right? And in addition to that, there are a couple of angels in the Old Testament that actually won't give up their name. They keep their name a secret. In fact, uh, one example that's in this uh, podcast is Jacob wrestles with this heavenly messenger and then he asks the heavenly messenger, hey, can you tell me your name? And the heavenly messenger says, no, can't do it. I won't do it and never does tell him his name. Keeps it a secret. Anyway, hope you like it. Here we go. Do you have difficulty bringing science and religion together? Do you need analytics and logical fact patterns to organize the scriptures? Do you have a science professor who's trying to drive a wedge between you and your belief in God? On this show, we are on a voyage to merge, unite, and consolidate the gospel with new discoveries in statistics, evolution, the Big Bang Theory, and the Bible. Join me and follow along to answer these questions with a drop of my Latter day Saint perspective. Welcome to the Big Bang Bible Podcast with me as your host, John S. Pennington Jr. One Sunday night, about 6 o'clock p.m., there came a knock on my door. And I answered it, and there standing was a young teenager who had been to my house many times before. He had his scriptures in his hands, and he said he had some gospel questions he would like to talk to me about. So I asked him in, and over our kitchen table, he pulled out this wrinkly old piece of paper with 40 questions written down. The young man's name was Casey, and he was about 17 years old at the time. He was becoming a student of the scriptures. Casey was in search of not only scriptural enlightenment, but also scriptural clarity. However, with his short 17 years on the earth, he could only study so much material on his own and, at this time, needed some assistance. I, on the other hand, had a lot of gray hair and wasn't even close to being a young man, but could still clearly remember when I was a young man carrying around an old wrinkled piece of paper with similar questions. Casey was looking for scriptural substance. He was seeking a foundation of scriptural references that would give him roots for his basic beliefs. Most people need this type of scriptural expedition at some time in their life. Casey's scriptures were filled in with highlighter marks and penciled in cross references. He was full of the conviction of Jesus Christ and was at the moment in need of the meat of the scriptures instead of the milk. Casey had been conversing with a friend of a Protestant religion, and I could tell from the wording of these questions that this banter of religious ideas had been going on for quite some time. The vast majority of these questions were pointed at the oddities and beliefs of the Mormons. Now, most of the questions were sincere and easily answered with just a few moments of referencing. However, there were two questions that stuck out and required an in-depth and lengthy study. The first was a question that many other Mormons had wondered about, as I did years ago. Casey said to me, why does anyone need a new name? I replied, that's a very good question. Because there are a lot of people in the Bible who get their names changed by God and receive a new name. Casey was referring to a verse in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 130, verses 10 and 11, which states, Then the white stone mentioned in Revelation 2.17 will become a Urim and to each individual who receives one, whereby things pertaining to the higher order of kingdoms will be made known, and a white stone is given to each of those who come into the celestial kingdom. Whereon is a new name written, which no man knoweth, save he that receiveth it. The new name is the key word. This particular scripture comes from the Doctrine and Covenants, which is a Mormon text. However, the original concept was written by John the Beloved, who was an original apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, John introduces the doctrine to all Christianity. Revelation 2.17 says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. As you can see, this is not just a Mormon doctrine, but this concept was composed by one of the original 12 apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ which is quoted directly from the Bible. Therefore, all Christians should believe in the new name doctrine. It was not conceived by Mormons, but a man who walked in the shadows and footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. To fully understand this new name doctrine, which was introduced by John, we will need to come to understand how significant and important it is to receive a new name. Also, we need to understand in what circumstance the children of God receive a name and how they keep their name. One point that very few people know is that Jesus Christ will also receive a new name. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, it says that Christ will obtain, and I quote, a more excellent name. Then, the Apostle John goes on to write that Jesus Christ himself will receive a new name. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 12, it says that Christ will write his new name upon those who overcome. And I quote, him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of the heaven from my God, and... I will write upon him my new name. Now remember here that the apostle John is talking about Jesus Christ. He is stating that for the people who overcometh, that Jesus is going to write upon these people his new name. So not only are the people in scriptures going to get a new name, but Jesus Christ himself receives a new name. We have read in the Doctrine and Covenants and also in the book of Revelation and both say that no man knows the new name except for the one who has received it. Therefore, it is by definition a secret name. The new name is private and should be kept sacred to the person who receives such a blessing. Jesus has a new name, and those people who overcome will also have a new name. From early on in the history of the Bible, humans are given new names from heavenly messengers. In fact, names have a great importance to many people in the Bible. They are especially important to those individuals who pray to and worship the Most High God of Israel. Do you remember the man Saul who was persecuting the original 12 apostles? His name was eventually changed from Saul to Paul. This apostle Paul had his name changed after he conversed with Jesus Christ while crossing the desert. The part of the story I want to emphasize is that Saul's name was changed to Paul sometime after he spoke to the resurrected Jesus Christ. Do you also remember a famous prophet in the Old Testament named Abraham? Well, the Lord appeared unto Abraham and talked with him, and it says that he walked before the Almighty God and changed his name to Abraham. Even Abraham's wife had her name changed by God from Sarai to Sarah. Abraham also had a famous grandson whose name was changed from Jacob. To Israel, this Jacob has a fantastic story in the book of Genesis about wrestling with a messenger of God and receiving a new name from that messenger. This is the same Jacob whose father was Isaac and his father was Abraham. So it goes, Abraham is the grandfather, Isaac is the father, and Jacob is the son. This incredible story is written in Genesis chapter 32. In the story, you will see that Jacob is directed by an angel to return to his homeland. On his journey home, Jacob sees many angels and then wrestles with a man until the break of day. Now, the first time I read this account of a wrestling match between a messenger of God and Jacob, I thought that Jacob was wrestling in his mind or in a dreamlike state. When I read further into the story, it says that both of them were wrestling so hard that Jacob's thigh or hip was thrown out of joint. This is when I realized it was a true physical wrestling match. These two physical beings wrestled most of the night until the break of day. Then, for some unknown reason, the messenger was worried about wrestling once the sun came up. It says that he had to leave because the day is breaking, and he asked Jacob to let him go. This messenger might have been worried that another person would see them once the sun arose. (laughs) Or maybe messengers from God have curfews, just like teenagers. Whatever the reason, the messenger pleaded with Jacob to let him go, for the day breaketh. But Jacob, being the tough guy that he was, still scrapping to the end with his hip or thigh pulled out of joint, said in Genesis chapter 32, verse 26, I quote, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Unquote. This statement begs the question as to who or what this messenger really is. What kind of a being is this messenger that Jacob expects a blessing from? If this is just an ordinary man, then why does Jacob expect a blessing from him? Then the question arises as to why Jacob is so willing to let him go just because of a blessing. Many Bible scholars believe that Jacob was being visited by angels. If you read the story in full, you can recognize that Jacob was seeing and being visited by angels all through his journey. Jacob seems to believe that this wrestling partner is of heavenly origin. Now, to make the point even more relevant, right after this experience, Jacob claims he has seen God face to face. And that's in Genesis chapter 32, verse 30. Therefore, the entire story leads the reader to believe the wrestler is an angel from God. Now, as Casey and I continued to talk that night, I said, let me ask you a question. If a messenger from God was about to bless you, what would you ask for? What do you think a good blessing for you that a messenger of God could give you? Would you ask for a blessing of health and strength? Would it be a blessing of increased knowledge? Maybe you would ask for a blessing of wealth and financial success. All of these blessings would come to my mind if I wrestled with an angel. If I got any one of these blessings, my wrestling to the point of my hip being thrown out of joint, Would have been worth it, and I would let the heavenly messenger go. But not Jacob. No, he didn't get a blessing of health and strength. He did not even get a blessing of wealth or knowledge. Jacob didn't get any of these things. He got something which is perplexing to the reader of the Bible in the 21st century. To satisfy Jacob and his request for a blessing sufficient enough to let the messenger go, all he gets is a new name. That's it. For the messenger says in Genesis chapter 32, verse 28, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. Okay, now I don't know about you, but if you wrestle with an angel all night and he's begging you to let him go, you're probably gonna get a pretty good blessing. Jacob receives a new name called Israel and is content to let the messenger go. He's satisfied with the new name. And evidently it's sufficient for Jacob to release the heavenly messenger. Now the real question here is why would Jacob be so content to just receiving a new name and then letting the messenger go? Does this conclusion to the story sound odd to anyone else? I mean, does anyone think that Jacob should have gotten a really good blessing? Would anyone have predicted that the story would end like that? I mean, that is the angel gives him a new name and Jacob says, "Okay." the end (laughs) again this begs the question and does not give the reader of the 21st century bible a clear answer however however if you take into consideration and understand what the apostle john was talking about in the book of revelation as to how very important a new name really is then the story starts to have substance and meaning In that context, it makes perfect sense that an angel of God gives Jacob a new name, and Jacob is very, very grateful for having received it. To summarize, a wrestling messenger from God gives Jacob something that he could not refuse, and Jacob is plenty satisfied with the gift of a simple name change. Okay, here is where the story gets really interesting. Before Jacob, who is now called Israel, lets the messenger go his way, Jacob asks the messenger to reveal his name. Basically, it says in Genesis 32, 29, And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? Okay, okay. Did anyone catch that? What is out of the ordinary here is that the messenger from God was taken back because Jacob wanted to know his name. This messenger will wrestle with you all night, throw your hip or thigh out of a joint. He'll give you a new name, but don't you even think about asking him for his name. That apparently is a no-no. The messenger resists and does not want to give up his name to just anyone or for just any reason. The messenger does not answer the question posed by Jacob, but the messenger Reverses the conversation and takes an aggressive posture and inquires why Jacob wants to know his name. This is an interesting turn in the conversation. The messenger shows a resistance and a defensive nature by going on the offense in the conversation. In the end, the messenger never does tell Jacob his name and Jacob is left wanting. Therefore, this leaves the reader of the story with more questions. The main question being, why is the name so sacred or secret that he cannot tell it to just anyone? Okay, now, this story of a messenger of God who does not reveal his name to Jacob becomes even more meaningful when we compare the next Old Testament story. This next story is in the book of Judges, chapter 13, and it speaks of a man named Manoah who is from the tribe of Dan. The Danites were one of the 12 original tribes of Israel. Manoah lived in a little town called Zorah, and he had a wife who was barren and unable to have children. One day, an angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and told her that she would bear a son. This angel gave her strict instructions to never let her son drink wine, strong drink, or anything unclean. The angel also said that no razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite unto the Lord. Okay, I need to do a, a quick clarification here. A Nazarene is someone who was born in Nazareth, like Jesus Christ. But a Nazarite was a person who performed disciplined actions such as never cutting their hair and being on a strict diet. This baby boy, whose name is Samson, becomes a Nazarite and grows up to be an Old Testament muscle man and hero. The angel states that this child, Samson, would begin to deliver the tribes of Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. Now, to the wife of Manoah, this news must have been shocking and electrifying. That is, to have someone predict her future and the future of her unborn son. Not only to be able to bear a son, but that her son was going to be placed on this earth for a specific mission from God. Now, this must have been a great honor and a responsibility placed on Samson's mother. Now, this prophecy was delivered from an angel of God, and so as you can imagine, she ran and told her husband. Okay, this is from chapter 13, verse 6 of Judges, and it says, A man of God came unto me, and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God. Very terrible. But I asked him, not whence he was, neither told me his name. What is interesting here is that the writer of the book of Judges emphasizes that the angel did not reveal his name now this emphasis will make a little more sense as we get more into the story so after Manoah had listened to this fantastic tale he sought the lord in prayer he asked the lord to send this man of god once again to teach them of what they should do unto the child that was to be born the story says that god listened to the voice of Manoah and sent the angel of god once again to the woman while she was sitting in the field but Manoah was not with her at the time so she quickly ran and got Manoah to come and see the messenger Manoah's first question when he arrived in the field was and I quote from Judges chapter 13 verse 11 art thou the man that spake unto the woman and he said i am Manoah continues his questions on how the child should be reared and what they should do unto him then the angel gives a warning to the woman to be aware the woman is instructed not to eat anything that cometh of the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. Now, as you can imagine when the angel is finished, Manoah beseeches the angel to stay with him for a while, and they can prepare you know a feast or something. Now this is a pretty smart move on Manoah's part, and my advice to Casey was that if he ever, ever, ever had an angel telling him what his future was about. The least he could do was invite him over for dinner. (laughs) That that would seem proper and polite because the longer you get him to stay, the more he might tell you. Okay, let me do a little more clarification here. In the book of Hebrews, it says that you might have angels around you all the time. You don't even know it. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses one and two, it says, let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Well, Manoah was definitely entertaining an angel unawares. However, in this story, the angel is on to Manoah's plan to detain him by getting the messenger to stay a little longer. The angel tells Manoah that he would not eat his bread or his burnt offering. The angel states that all of Manoah's offerings must be to the Lord and he's not going to accept any credit for the prophecy, but wants all glory to be given to the Lord. Now, this to me sounds like a really, really good angel. However, up until this point, Manoah had not realized the messenger was an angel. After the angel denies the dinner invitation, Manoah asks the angel a very pointed question. When he says in Judges chapter 13, verse 17, he says, What is thy name, that when thy sayings come to pass, we may do thee honor? Now here is where this story gets a little interesting also. The angel does not give Manoah his name, but sternly fires back a question to Manoah, saying, in Judges chapter 13, verse 18, he says, Why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is secret? the angel actually says that his name is a secret. The angel is taken back by the question and wants to know why Manoah needs to know his name. This is a very interesting turn in the dialogue and only draws more importance to names. When you take this story and reference it with what the Apostle John said in the book of Revelations about getting a new name, it has astonishing clarity. That is, no one will know your new name except him that receives it and thus, by definition, the name is a secret. This is such great stuff, and some people think the Old Testament is boring. I I don't understand it. I love the Old Testament. The angel adamantly refuses to deliver his name to Manoah. Now, why would this be so important to the angel? The question is not answered as to why the angel never reveals his name to Manoah, But from the story, we gather that the angel of the Lord does not want to expose his name to a human and is offended when asked to do so. Wow, and this whole story is in the Bible? A story about a secret name of an angel and the importance that the angel places on keeping his name a secret? This fits perfectly to what the apostle John wrote. Now, the messenger that appeared to Jacob didn't want to reveal his name either, but the angel that appeared to Manoah goes further to say that his name is actually a secret, which falls right in line with Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, which says, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. A similarity in the two stories is that after their experiences, Jacob, Manoah, and Manoah's wife all claim they have seen God. The messenger that came to Jacob kept his name a secret. The angel that came to Manoah actually said that his name was a secret. Both are very interesting and similar on this subject. And comparing Jacob and Saul, who are now named Israel and Paul, both had new names once they spoke to a heavenly being. Paul talked with Jesus, and Israel said he saw God face to face. Casey sat across the kitchen table that night with me, and he was enlightened by scriptures written thousands of years ago by prophets who knew how to write down the words of God. Do you think that prophets of old knew that these particular words would make a difference to a 17-year-old boy in the 21st century? Maybe. Maybe not, but that is why the scriptures are so interesting and enlightening. Reading the scriptures is an amazing process because they usually only answer the question when and only when the reader is ready for the answer. Scriptures are a great thing to help each one of us in our lives because they have this amazing way of talking to you in a personalized way at different times in your life. Now, As Casey got back to his wrinkled paper with all the questions written on him, he asked a second question that caused a more lengthy discussion. Casey asked, why are Mormons required to wear special white clothing to go inside the temple? My answer was straightforward, but initially shocked Casey. My answer was that not all Mormons wear special white clothing. The only Latter-day Saints that wear special white clothing are those who have entered into the temple and have taken on temple covenants. Only those who are worthy temple-attending Latter-day Saints are privileged to wear such apparel. I guess the direct answer to the question is, if you belong to a religion that does not have temples, then there would be no reason for you to wear such clothing items. Please let me explain. In approximately the year 1400 years before Christ, a man named Moses lived. This Moses was a prophet and leader of the 12 tribes of Israel. He led them out of Egypt after hundreds of years of slavery. While Moses was leading the children of Israel through the desert, the Lord instructed Moses to build a tabernacle out of cloth, or in other words, a tent tabernacle, with walls made of cloth held up by poles. This tabernacle was to house the Ark of the Covenant and to provide a place for sacrifice to be performed and offered. This tabernacle was constructed that people could use it and have the opportunity to show God that they could sacrifice an unblemished animal in similitude of the Christ who was to come in the future. However, the people could not execute the sacrifice for themselves. They were required to bring the unblemished animal to the tabernacle and give it to a Levite or tabernacle worker, and he would perform the sacrifice for them. They could not do the sacrifice for themselves. Thus the tabernacle worker was performing a sacrifice for the people they could not do for themselves. For a period of 1,400 years, God would only allow the Levites, who were also one of the twelve tribes of Israel, to perform the sacrifices. Therefore, the 1,400-year span was only for the Levites and allowed them to be tabernacle or sacrificial workers. Of the descendants of Levi, only a few of them, the descendants of Aaron, were able to actually perform the sacrifices for the people inside the tabernacle. In about the year 1000 BC, the tent tabernacle was transformed into a stone temple called Solomon's Temple. The only difference was the walls were now made of stone rather than fabric. Before a Levite was allowed to be a tabernacle worker, or later a temple worker, they had to be dressed in certain types of clothing, which you can read about in the book of Exodus. One of the types of clothing requirements necessary to work inside the tabernacle or later in the Solomon's temple is outlined in Exodus chapter 28, verse 42. And it says, And thou shalt make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness, from their loins even unto the thighs they shall reach. Basically, all tabernacle or temple workers were commanded to make long linen shorts that reach to the thigh. Here you have the Bible dictating the type of clothing and the type of material and the length of the britches that the tabernacle workers and temple workers were required to wear. Now, this whole chapter in Exodus discusses clothing items that were only for tabernacle or temple workers. These are the dress standards for individuals who are enabled to do the sacrifices for the people inside the tabernacle or temple. As you can read from the Old Testament, only a few Israelite descendants wore special clothing because only a few were temple workers. The point here is that all tabernacle and temple working people had to wear linen clothing. All other tribes of Israel could wear whatever they wanted to wear because they were not temple or tabernacle workers. Therefore, only a select few were privileged to wear such clothing. These biblical passages should help you and everyone else to see that Latter-day Saints are being directed in the proper dress and clothing requirements as taught in the Bible. They have the same clothing requirements that was taught by Moses since the tabernacle was instituted. They are instructed by the same God that instructed Moses. Therefore, rather than ask the question, why Mormons wear special temple clothing, the question must be reversed. Why would any person who reads and understands the Bible not realize that all temple-going people must have special white clothing. It is required by the dictates of the Bible itself. If Latter-day Saints did not build temples to the God of Israel, then there would be no reason, but they do build temples, work in temples, and therefore need to follow the instructions that are outlined in the Bible. They are following the Bible's directions as outlined in the book of Exodus which was written by one of the greatest prophets who had ever lived, he being Moses. If you are in a religion that does not have temples, then by definition there would be no need for anyone in that religion to wear special white clothing. However, if you are in a religion that believes and understands and realizes God's relationship to man through temples then if you want to calculate yourself with a temple serving people you would understand exodus 28:42 in revelation chapter 3 verse 4 it once again talks about people who wear special white clothing worthily because they have not defiled their white clothing and it says i quote they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy unquote Then it has another reference again in Revelation chapter 16, verse 15. It blesses those people who, I'm going to quote here, watcheth and keepeth his garments, unquote. This is, of course, as opposed to those people who lose the privilege to wear their white clothing and to enter into the temple. In contrast to Revelation 16, 15, this would mean that they have not watched and kept their garments. Now look, some people in the course of their lives will choose to defile their covenants and promises that they've made to be a temple-going person. However, the beautiful thing about Jesus Christ and His gospel is forgiveness. Forgiveness is universal and is awaiting all those who seek it and who hopefully keep Revelation 16.15. The scriptures solidify the blessings for those people who reverently and stalwartly retain their temple worthiness retaining the admiration of Jesus Christ to become known as the sons and daughters of God. That Sunday evening, Casey and I were both learning some valuable scriptures. And as the discussion went around my kitchen table, the 17-year-old's countenance was glowing. We were both growing. We weren't learning a subject of trivial pursuit, but of a grand plan that was cast by the Word of God long before He, Jesus Christ came to this earth in the flesh. In one of the last chapters of the entire Bible, the Apostle John brings the summation of the new name and the special white clothing to an incredible vision of clarification for those who are seeking answers on this subject. Because Casey and I had built up this subject over the past several hours with a foundation of scriptures, we were both better prepared to understand what we were about to read in Revelation chapter 19, verses 12 to 16, it is speaking about Jesus, and it says, and I quote, And he had a name written that no man knew, but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And his armies, which were in heaven, followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vestiture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, As you can read in the scripture, his name is written on his vestiture or vest and on his thigh, And no man knew his name, but he himself. And with that name, which is the word of God, he called upon his most faithful followers in heaven. These faithful stalwarts had on fine linen, white and clean. This group of the armies in heaven, which follow the Savior, are dressed in fine linen that is white and clean. This fine linen is further defined in Revelation 19, verse 8, saying, and I quote, For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. The scripture says saints can lose their privilege to wear the fine linen if they decide that they no longer want to be righteous. That is why Mormons refer to themselves as latter-day saints. They are constantly seeking to follow the commandments of God in righteousness. This is not by coincidence, but a design that is from the master designer. Now that night, there was one other scripture that we studied out of the Book of Mormon. And it's in Mosiah chapter five, verse 11 to 12. And it says, and I would that ye should remember also that this is the name that I said I should give unto you that should never be blotted out except it be through transgression. Therefore, take heed that ye do not transgress that the name be not blotted out of your hearts. I say unto you, I would that ye should remember to retain the name written always in your hearts, that ye are not found on the left hand of God, but that ye hear and know the voice by which ye are called, and also this name by which he shall call you, Unquote. In the Book of Mormon, Mosiah is urging the people whom he is speaking to to know the name by which Jesus Christ will call them. In this passage, it seems very important that Mosiah gets his message across to his audience that a name by which you were called needs to be remembered so that when you're called, you will recognize the caller as your savior from the bonds of death unto life of resurrection. Okay, now remember that scripture and let's compare it to the book of Mark. In the book of Mark chapter 5, it talks about a man that was crazy. He was continually crying in the mountains and cutting himself. They had tried to bind him with chains and put him in fetters but he would break free. But the Apostle Mark emphasizes that the man was far off when he saw Jesus and runs up to Jesus and worships him and says, Jesus, thou son of the most high God. The point here is that he recognized Jesus from afar off and even called him by name. When Jesus realizes that the wild man knows his name, This would naturally cause Jesus to wonder where they had met before. The first thing Jesus says to him in Mark 5, 9 is, What is thy name? Now, the wild man cannot give him a proper name because he's filled with many devils and spirits and just says, My name is Legion, for we are many. Thus, the wild man failed the first test just like Mosiah had outlined in the Book of Mormon. That was to produce a name that never should be blotted out. These devils were all crammed inside this man's body, were the spirits who followed Satan when they lost the war in heaven. And thus their names are blotted out from the Book of Life. And also you can see even Jesus places a high importance on names, and it is a serious matter, of which... Casey had a right to ask such an in-depth question. Okay, I've got a little quick story I've got to tell you before I finish up. A few years ago, I was on a tour in Israel, and I had the opportunity to visit Jerusalem, the Dome of the Rock, and the West Wall. While I was standing next to the West Wall of the old temple in Jerusalem, an elderly Jewish man came up to me and my friend. The man was dressed like a rabbi in all black and white clothing and a big black hat. He, seeing that we were from the USA, asked for a donation for the children of Israel. My friend, who was standing next to me, gave him a few dollars and then went back to observing the old temple outer west wall that dated back thousands of years. The elderly Jewish man came back and asked my friend if he wanted a new name. The Jewish man told my friend that if he gave him $20, the old man would give him a new name. We were just standing there in the midst of the small crowd of people, and this was transpiring unbeknownst to the rest of the group. So my friend gave him a $20 bill, and the old Jewish man tied a dark piece of thread around my friend's finger in a knot, then whispered in his ear a new name. I was right there observing all of this with amazement. And now that I think about this experience, I realize that the Jewish people, especially an old Jewish rabbi, would have an interest in the Old Testament stories based upon the history of his ancestors. It was an experience I will never forget. So in summation, the wearing of fine white linen and the old Jewish rabbi giving a new name to my friend are all biblical-based doctrines. For those people in religions who do not have an interest, these subjects in the Bible are confusing they would naturally question their meaning and understanding. This is mainly because in their current lives and experiences, it would have very little relevance. Temples are for those people who wish to be called the elect of God. It is for those people who hope to be called by Jesus in the last day with their linen white and clean. Now, wait a minute. Please let me clarify that last statement because I do not want to be accused of not believing that we are saved by the grace of God. I do believe that we are saved by the grace of God, lest any man should boast. And that's from Ephesians 2, 9. Every person will be saved from death in the resurrection by the grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ, obtaining some form of glory. We are saved by grace. That is very clear in the Bible. In John chapter 5, verse 28-29, it states that both the just and the unjust will be resurrected. Also in the book of Corinthians, It says that some people in the resurrection will have a glory like unto the sun, and some people will have a glory like unto the moon, and some people will have the glory like unto the stars, that each star differeth one from another. That's in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, 42. My personal belief is that God wants us to have the glory like unto the sun. He has given us the opportunity and desires all of us to obtain that level of glory. He doesn't force us to do anything. He just offers opportunity for us to learn to walk and talk like His Son, Jesus Christ. To do this, we must practice continually to be like His Son. All humans learn from repetition. Therefore, reading the Scriptures again and again helps us learn in one way, but by us acting out and performing unselfish acts, that shows the pure love of Christ. We must all try to obtain the state of charity, where our love for someone is greater than the love we have for ourselves. Then that is when we are ready to obtain the greatest of all the gifts of God. The act of doing for others and not considering yourself allows us to become true followers of Christ. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus did something that we could not do for ourselves. In like manner, when each of us attends the temple and sacrifices, our time for those people who cannot do their own temple ordinances, then we learn by repetition a very small part of what Christ did for us. We do things for other people that they could not do for themselves, just as Jesus did something for us that we could not do for ourselves. Thus, we learn a little more on how to become like Jesus as the Apostle James taught us in being doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. And that's from James chapter 1, verse 22. Okay, as we discussed these topics for over uh, three hours, Casey received some answers to his scriptural questions. He learned about a 3,000-year-old dress code for temple workers. He learned that if he ever wrestled with an angel or a messenger from God, that he should use the rising sun as a bargaining chip to get a really cool blessing. He also learned that when you talk to an angel, you must wait for the angel to offer his name to you. Asking for his name will get you nowhere and might offend him. One of the most amazing things about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the scriptures is that you can put in all the time and effort you want to put into it, and it always pays you back more than you deposit. Because during that discussion with Casey that night, I learned and received much more enlightenment than he did. And that is what I love about the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter how much I give to Christ, he always returns much more than I ever put in. Isn't it great? I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The author would like to make one clarification for this chapter. The Bible refers to Jacob's thigh being thrown out of joint, and the author assumed that it was referring to Jacob's hip. After further study, the author now believes that when the Bible refers to the area of the leg named the thigh, it is probably referring to the knee or knee area of the leg. This is Secret Names of Angels. Thank you for listening.